This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So one of the things that had uh, was kind of big at the end of last year was it was the 10th anniversary of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. The, and that's a kind of a big deal as far as like true crime news goes. And it's like um, such a big deal. I, you know, I followed that sort of obsessively when, when it first happened. It like felt a little weird that 10 years had passed. Well, definitely. And the story resonated with me for like a number of reasons. It doesn't seem like it should have been 10 years ago. Yeah. It had, you know, it had cropped back up in the news the last couple of years because there was this whole thing where Alex Jones, uh, who was a radio host, had, um, he ended up being sued by some of the parents of uh, whose children were killed in the shooting because he was saying that it was a, like a false flag operation. It was... Fake. Yeah, fake. Uh, what is the word that he used? Like something, of, some kind of act, crisis actors. Like he ran this whole thing on uh, his shows talking about that for like a long time. So he ends up being sued and losing to the tune of like a billion dollars. There were lawsuits that sort of like rolled throughout the years about people who wrote books about that case and talked about that case, the manufacturers of the guns related to that case, you know, it, it kept going um, for quite some time, but uh, you know, no real criminal action really took place there because the perpetrator uh, killed himself. He had um, killed his mom and then he killed himself at the sort of the end of all of that. And, you know, that's sort of depressing uh, when that happens. But it's such a tragic situation all around. It kind of leaves you numb. It really does. In fact, I, I've wondered sometimes if people are so adamant about, like, you were saying the false flag, the conspiracy theories of, like, how the government set it up for some unknown reason. I wonder if, like, that is just a really callous way of them trying to cope with what occurred. Yeah, I mean... Uh, you, when you have a school shooting that's that big and that sort of sprawling, because you know you're talking 27 kids died and his um, his mom had been killed at home as well. So, well, and these were first graders. Um, yeah, these were little kids. Which makes it like, oh, it makes it very hard. Um, not that you know, uh, middle or high schools are are you know not hard, but like these are little kids, and it it really amplifies the. Uh, in a sense, lost there, right? Yeah. And this kid was like, you know, 19, 20 years old. And it's I, all a know, waste, all of it. Yeah. I, I followed it and I just remember thinking, like, how horrible it was. But it stuck, like, it's one of those things that, like, stuck in time in my mind. And anytime um, something sticks in my mind, I'll occasionally go back and sort of read around it. 
that case is unique for a slightly different reason for me. So the shooting took place. Uh, it, it's known as the, the, like the Sandy Hook shooting. But it took place in Newtown, Connecticut, um, which is a pretty small place. I don't know how big the population is. I imagine it's probably uh, twenty or 30,000 people there. And I, I don't know much about that town or that area, but I had read a little bit about it because it's like on, in, in my mind, it's sort of on the edge of being part of like New York, like being, you know, over in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And um, about seven months after the Sandy Hook shooting. So the Sandy Hook shooting takes place um, December 14th, 2012. Uh, and I don't, I'm trying to think, I think that's a Friday. It was um, a Friday, yeah. It was a Friday, okay. So in July of 2013, I sort of got sucked into something happening up there. I, and I don't, like, it's weird for me because, like, sometimes I'll, I'll pick up a case and start uh, reading about it because I'm curious if it's going to hit the mainstream media or if um, um, or if anyone's going to talk about it. Particularly, and you and I discussed this before, particularly it's when it's like a, a white male. And I think, we, I think the way we described it as like a, a middle-aged white male, an adult white male. I don't, I don't know exactly how we said it. But there was a guy who vanished up there in uh, uh, Newtown, uh, Newtown, Connecticut. Sorry. There's was, there was a guy that vanished in, in Newtown, Connecticut. And it was one of those things that like, like it just resonated with me. Do you remember the case of uh, Robert Hoagland? I do. So he lived with his wife uh, and her name was Lori. She was actually a teacher at Newtown High School. But they lived on Glen Road in the Sandy Hook neighborhood. And they raised three boys. Now, I, I don't know how long they'd been married, but I do know that, like, the children were, like, I want to say they were all between 18 and 22 by the, the point in our story that we're going to talk about. Um, and they had separated when they got to adulthood. So, meaning, I, I took that to assume that, like, the youngest kid had been at least 18. Right. And, they had a 24-year-old who had some uh, addiction problems, and he went into rehab. And Robert Hoagland, um, he had left his uh, restaurant job in that area, and he had started working at a friend's law firm so that he could have, like, a more regular um, schedule to help his son with recovery, to help Max with recovery. And he also worked as a, a real estate appraiser. The plan the family had was they were thinking of taking the son who had been through rehab out on the Appalachian Trail to be like a part of his recovery or his um, transition out of uh, addiction. And in July of 2013, uh, the wife, Lori, she goes on a two-week trip over to Turkey with some friends. Now, she was regularly exchanging email messages with her husband, Robert, and they had separated for a year or two, 
and then they had later reconciled. So at this point in time, they were on pretty good terms and they were talking, particularly when it came to discussions about the children. And about a week before Lori was supposed to come back from Turkey, uh, two of the family's laptop computers were, were stolen. They went missing and, and Robert thought they were stolen. Um, he came to believe that he, he believed his son had taken them and that he was probably trading them uh, for drugs and, and either sell them and or exchange them for drugs. So he sends an email to Lori and he apologizes that this has happened. And they briefly speak on the phone on the evening of July 27th. And he confirms that he's going to pick her up when she gets back from Turkey at JFK airport. Uh, and that's supposed to be on July 29th. So on July 28th, he goes out in his wife's car. He buys bagels from a, a little local ba- a bakery in town, and he stops at a gas station. And security cameras record him paying for the fuel, and he buys a map at 6.45 a.m. on July 28th. This is the last time that Robert Hoagland is ever seen. According to Max... Robert did come home. So that's the last, like, I guess that would be public for the last time he's seen in public. Um, but according to Max, Robert comes home. They eat breakfast with the bagels that he just bought. Um, he's, Max said that he saw his dad paying some bills and then that he was playing Scrabble online um, either on a computer or a phone. And that around 11 a.m., uh, his dad went outside to mow. And while he was doing that, Max took his mom's car They said he'd be back in a few hours. The next morning, Robert is supposed to be meeting Lori at the airport around 4 p.m. She arrives at JFK. She calls their home phone and uh, cell phone, gets no answer. She assumes he's stuck in traffic or that his phone battery might be dead. In fact, she's quoted as saying that like frequently his, uh, his phone would be without a charge. So she doesn't initially go home to Sandy Hook. Instead, she goes to a relative's home that's nearby, and she starts calling around to see if she can locate Robert. She talks to Robert's boss's wife, and he points out that Robert didn't show up for work that morning. So when Lori finally leaves the relative's home and goes to their home on July the 30th, Robert's not there. Inside, she finds his phone, his keys, his passport, his identification, and his medication. She finds his clothing is in the laundry. Uh, she can tell that he had mowed. There's like clothing that has like evidence that he had been out mowing. So Max's story sort of lines up. And she finds all the clothing that she saw when she goes to this mobile gas or investigators go to this mobile gas station and they get some footage and they ask her to verify that it's Robert in the footage. His car, which is a Mini Cooper, is still in the driveway. Now, the Volkswagen's not there, and that's because Max was driving it. But Lori assumes that her husband might have had some reason to go out and do an errand or like something else might have happened. But then she hears from police in Bridgeport, Connecticut, that they had arrested her son. There had been a confrontation between Robert and some men that Max had allegedly took the laptops to to either sell or trade for drugs. This area was known to police as an area uh, where a lot of drug sales and sex work took place. 
that's it's basically posted that it's like a curfew zone, it's a no-go zone. And Max ends up getting charged with third-degree criminal trespass for being there. He tells police that he had gone there in the Volkswagen, his mom's car, to buy some drugs and that his mom had given him permission to use the car. She told the Bridgeport police that that he did not have her permission. So they held him on a $2,500 bond, uh, but they did go and question him to find out if he knew where his dad was. And he said that he did not. The Hoagland family, like Lori and the other members of the family, they informed the National Park Service that they believe that Robert might have gone on his own to hike the Appalachian Trail. So along with friends of the family, the Park Service printed and distributed flyers with Robert's picture on them. And the family went about trying to get media attention on the case. There was a missing persons report that was filed in there in the you know, Sandy Hook area. But the police sort of like hit a dead end after the confrontation with the people that he thought had the laptop. And then they see him withdrawing cash. They see him buying a map. They see him paying for fuel. And about a week later, they decided to just put him into NamUs, the National Missing and Unidentified Persons Systems Database. On August the 6th, Lori found Robert's wallet and the keys to his Mini Cooper hidden under a little doll that was sitting on a chair in their bedroom. She later told investigators that she had changed her original theory that her husband had left voluntarily and might possibly be on the Appalachian Trail. And she had started to sort of expand her theory, thinking that maybe Robert might have been abducted for something related to the confrontation uh, with the people Max had given the laptops to. So Max pleads guilty to the trespassing charge, and he gets let out of jail for time served police end up questioning the people that he said had stolen these laptops, but there's no link to Robert or Robert's disappearance. And Max says he doesn't know anything about what happened to his dad. And Lori's been pretty specific to say that everything related to Max and the trespassing and those men had didn't seem to have anything to do with Robert's disappearance. Uh, Police also searched Robert's work computer when he was found to Um, have searched several times for an address in Rhode Island, but there was no connection found there to his disappearance when that was investigated. There was a similar search on his home computer, but there was a program that Robert had downloaded and installed a month before his disappearance that allowed the user to uh, browse privately and to delete all records of searches and results. They made a big deal out of that. But to me, um, it seemed like he had just put DuckDuckGo as his browser. Hmm. So in the in the fall of 2013, Lori and some volunteers started searching wooded areas in and around Sandy Hook. The police did end up bringing in search dogs. And the, the local police there searched a lake that was on the edge of town that's like right along uh, the Housatonic River. None of these efforts of searches turned up anything related to Robert. And the oldest son, Chris, um, in October of 2013, he leaves what he's been doing down in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and he comes home to help his mom out with his brothers and to just help out around the house. Now, they had started 
the court process necessary to do all of the things that happen when someone goes missing. Usually the first thing is the court will appoint a trustee to oversee the missing or deceased, potentially deceased person's interests. They start that in fall of 2013. Now, late 2013, uh, there are multiple sightings of men who could potentially be Robert reported in Rhode Island, which Rhode Island is directly to the east of the area they live. Uh, there was a man seen walking along uh, 117 there. He was later seen walking along I-95 near Warwick, Rhode Island. Now, that turned out to be a different person. But there were some uh, Rhode Island Department of Transportation workers who thought they had seen him uh, walking along the Connecticut state line with Rhode Island. Uh, that man was never located, and police ne- never determined his identity. In December 2013, uh, for some reason, the Los Angeles Police Department started asking people in certain Los Angeles suburbs, including Hollywood, to be on the lookout for Robert. There were no significant sightings reported there, but there was one in January when someone reported that they had seen Robert in Brookfield, which is the town north of Newton in Connecticut. Um, he was reportedly driving a car with New York license plates, but when police got there, they couldn't find him, and they reviewed uh, sort of security camera and surveillance footage in the area, and they couldn't tell if it was actually him. On the one-year anniversary of Robert's disappearance in late July 2014, there was another sighting reported in Connecticut, and then a man told officials of the Putnam County, New York area, uh, at the sheriff's office there, that they had seen Robert going into the county jail in Carmel, which is the county seat for Putnam. And it's not very far from Connecticut. And then he went in and then he left. So the only footage that they had from that instance uh, showed the man on the outside of the building, but they couldn't identify him from that footage. So some friends of the Hoagland family complained about this being a particularly slow search. And they believe that the possibility of criminal activity was pretty likely in this case. The family did. Police ended up concluding that they believed he had left the area of his own accord. And the family said that the reason they did that was so they didn't have to spend so much time and so many resources on this case. In November 2014, there was another tip that Robert might be working at a restaurant down in South Carolina this turned out to not be as much of a tip as they thought. Uh, they did reach out to the Horry County Sheriff's Office and the Myrtle Beach Police, but ultimately they decided that like this was just like a random thought that the tipster had had, and it was something related to one of the kids um, having lived in that area. There are a lot of theories on this. In 2016, Investigation Discovery covered it. Um, there was an episode of Disappeared that they put out that focused on Robert's disappearance. There were no significant leads or sightings that came about from this. They were hoping that this episode called A Family Man, which aired on May 31st of 2016, would generate some new tips. Around that time, the police talked briefly to the press, and you know they sort of revealed some of the things that we were talking about. That case is now closed, and that happened over the holiday season. And did you read about this like in the mainstream media? I did. It's actually, uh, it's great that it, I mean, it's not great, but like, it's a nice example of uh, one of the categories that I have. 
Yeah. So on the Help Us Find Hoagie uh, Facebook page, which is uh, it, it was still active. I don't know if it's been archived or not. Um, you guys could go on and potentially check that out. It's uh, literally Help Us Find H O A G Y Hoagie. Uh, it talks about some of the different media, some of the families talking on there. They talked about like how specific an amount of uh, cash had been withdrawn. Um, it, it's a it's a really good rundown to sort of a disappointing ending in some ways. It's an interesting ending to me. On December fifth, two thousand twenty-two, police responded to investigate an untimely death about a hundred miles west of Newtown, Connecticut, uh, in a town called Rock Hill, New York. And officials had difficulty ascertaining the identity of the deceased, who it was believed was a man named Richard King, who had been living in this area for almost 10 years. He'd been living there since November of 2013. Further investigation revealed that this individual, Richard King, had some documents squirreled away that indicated he was Robert Hoagland. And Sullivan County officials, which is the county where Rock Hill is located, were able to work in conjunction with the Newtown police to confirm that this was indeed Robert Hoagland living under a false identity 120 miles from where he used to live. (laughs) I thought that was a cool piece of uh, true crime news to kick this off uh, because, like, it shows it, like, sometimes – you know, he walked you, away from his life. Yeah, he just walked away. Yeah. Um, it was. It is fascinating to me, and you know they they do have it in the media, right? So it's yeah, not like yeah. we're the only ones bringing it up. But like, there was absolutely nothing criminal about his disappearance. Um, yeah, he, he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, and he didn't they, do anything illegal. They did. Um, you know, I, I don't know, like if he was even aware of what was happening, but resources were wasted. It's certainly not his fault. It's also not his family's fault. I mean, sometimes these kind of things happen, but um, it would always be better to like, you know, let people know that you were um, going to start your new life. But I think the reason a lot of times that doesn't happen is because then you can't. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because people just won't let you go or whatever. Um, I feel like he just had had enough and uh, he, it, it's kind of an interesting story that of course, you know, I feel like is none of my business because it wasn't criminal, but um, he made his way and he really did start a new life. Now he was only 59 years old when he died. Yeah. Um, so there's no telling what kind of toll that took on him. And I believe, um, you know, his, they were grown when he, uh, disappeared and now they're, you know, even older, uh, his sons were basically, I think somebody asked them and they made the comment that they're still processing what happened and, you know, they didn't really have a comment, but, um, it is, it's, it is really interesting. Yeah. I was, uh, this, it's surprising to find such a clear example of something I consider all the time when I, when I sort of sit down and, and like look at a missing persons case. Um, right. He's, he wasn't a, he wasn't what anybody would consider to be a vulnerable missing person. No, no, he wasn't. But I worry that like, you know, sometimes even you and I have been a little guilty of looking at capable adult people, men and women 
and sort of like, if it doesn't seem like they need any kind of assistance, we'll wonder for a minute, but we might brush it off, even if there's a chance they've been abducted. And nobody, uh, than, nobody found him. Well, right. And yeah, you're right. I mean, if, if, unless there's something like, I mean, there's usually some sort of evidence or something that would indicate, you know, foul play or like that this person may be in trouble. For the run-of-the-mill, like, normal adult person who was last seen getting gas and, like, mowing his yard or whatever, I had a hard time believing anything bad happened to him. Yeah. Um, unless there was some sort of, like, you know, ongoing feud or he was set to testify against so-and-so or, you know, something, anything nefarious. The, the son's angle, I mean, it was something to consider, but, like, I don't ever see anything like that really playing out. It it. I mean, what would be the point of bringing the father into it or whatever, you know? But, yeah, I mean, I guess that was something they could go off of. But it ends up just being like, you know, nothing. He literally just said, I've had it, and he left. And he was able to make his life from there. And, um, but just on a general basis, um, without something, uh, and even if it, you know, because he... It tends to be sometimes uh, middle-aged people that I would call typically invulnerable, meaning that like they're probably not a victim of anything. Um, something will crop up and you'll go, oh, wait, maybe they were a little bit vulnerable. And that can change it as well, even if it's not com- like something really obviously nefarious going on. Yeah. I, you know, so there was a chance that they thought maybe he'd been abducted. I think some of it looked weird to his wife, but once you've been sort of separated and and reconciled, like, I think you have to, like, she took the right approach where she was at first thinking, maybe he's off on his own, maybe he left of his own accord. She was right. She just didn't know where he was going or that he didn't care to have her, you know, be a part of his life anymore, clearly. Um, But you know, she did sus- suspect once she found like his personal stuff was all there at the house that maybe something weirder had happened. But it turns out that it did not. He just uh, vanished. But that was tied to the Sandy Hook anniversary for me because I remember that guy disappearing. And I thought, you know, the 10 year anniversary of Sandy Hook passing and then us, um, the topic that we have today talking about him and, and how that sort of neatly tied itself up in, in almost the same amount of time. Um, Cause it happened like seven months after Sandy hook that he disappeared. And then we ended up uh, finding out in 2022 that he was not missing after all. One of the things I wanted to bring up today, and this is not a normal part of uh, the series. This is something new that we're doing. When we mention something in the podcast series that I feel like should get its own episode, I'm going to start doing a few of those episodes that are sort of right on the sideline of what we've been doing, a little bit of a a side story. So we started talking about um, one of the serial killers that uh, is providing the genesis for how serial killers work in uh, the lonely heart section of things. I don't know that he specifically applies to that, but we mentioned a kidnapping in there. And I wanted to take today and talk about that kidnapping because there is some interesting material out there about that. There's a book. uh, There's a couple cool sources. Uh, For today, uh, parkrapidsenterprise.com has a three-part series that serves as the basis for some of our sources today. Uh, There's a writer there named Tracy Briggs 
who um, is a part of that. And then the second thing is uh, there's a guy who covered this at the time and when it happened. His name is William Swanson, and he wrote a book that's called uh, Stolen from the Garden. Um, That book is available on Amazon. Um, It is what I would call a beach read. Like if you're into a true crime story, it is weirdly upbeat, if that is an accurate description to use here. But who we're talking about today is a woman named Virginia Piper. And I mentioned her as uh, Ginny Piper because Harvey, and I can't say his last name, the Hammer, (laughs) Carnahan, um, he was uh, one of the people in the suspect list, but that's not quite how... Uh, Virginia Piper's case played out. And I wanted to talk about that with you today. Have you read the Parks uh, Rapid article on this or some of it? Yes, I have. Okay. So I'm going to give a little backstory on this um, as to who Virginia Piper is. Uh, And I'm going to quote Tracy Briggs and and also William Swanson because they're kind of working on this article together. She looks like a million bucks is how William Swanson the young reporter from UPI in 1972, and now the author of Stolen from the Garden, The Kidnapping of Virginia Piper, starts his book about the crime. Virginia Piper was a beautiful 49-year-old mother of three sons. She didn't have a job. She didn't have a profession, even though she was college-educated, but she was very prominent with the Twin Cities charitable organizations. Newspapers of the time would call her a socialite and call her husband a tycoon. She was married to Harry Piper Jr., better known as Bobby, who was the CEO of prominent brokerage firm Piper, Jeffrey, and Hopwood, now called Piper Sandler. Wealthy, respected, and prominent, you might find them at the same cocktail parties with the likes of the Dayton or the Pillsbury families. Despite being part of Twin Cities Upper Crust, Swanson said that Ginny was pretty down to earth. She was very, very popular. She was beautiful, and she was funny. Despite the money, everybody considered her very easy to know and unpretentious, said Swanson. July 27, 1972. Ginny's popularity and ability to relate to people would play out in her favor on the warm afternoon of July 27th when her world was suddenly turned upside down. This is how she described what happened to her in a news conference after she was rescued. And these are her words. There's actually video of this available of Jenny talking about this. It's pretty cool. She says, Thursday afternoon, about five minutes before one, I was picking some dead pansies off one of my plants. And I had two cleaning ladies there that day because they always come on Thursday. And one of them came running out of the terrace and said, oh, those men. And I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. So I went inside and there were these two gunmen masked. Both each one of them had two guns in their hands, and they said, go get the cleaning woman, the one who ran away. He said, get her back. They tied me up, and then they handcuffed me, and they asked me where the safe was, and I said, we didn't have one. They said, where's the jewelry? And I said, you may have three of my pieces that are upstairs, but that's all I had. And they said, where's your old man? And I said, he's not here. He's at the office. And they said, okay, Mrs. Piper, you're coming with us. Jenny went on to explain that they put a gun to her back and they led her to their car where they put a pillowcase over her head and they made her lay down in the back seat. So then they took off and they started driving. She didn't know where they were going. 
Swanson says before they left the house, they did one other thing. They left an envelope addressed to family, in quotes, on a desk by the front door. That, of course, is this extraordinary ransom note, says Swanson. It was the single largest kidnapping for ransom in FBI history. There were other big ones, but none in the United States as large as this million dollars. Swanson said that Bobby was the one to discover the cleaning ladies tied up and the note laying on the table. From Swanson's description, he says Bobby's a no-nonsense guy, and when he read that note, he had no doubt in his mind that these guys meant business. This was not a prank. These were not some buffoons who were just playing around. The people were serious and dangerous, and he wasn't going to mess around with them. So the FBI is called in immediately. And Swanson says, I think they felt that Jenny Piper was probably dead and that she was already a goner. That's usually the way these things work, which isn't necessarily true, but it's often the way they work. But Jenny was alive. After driving for a couple of hours, they took her out of the car and they taped her eyes shut. It was raining as they began to walk her through the woods through some deep grass. She said that at some point they laid down a tarp. Now, Jenny didn't know it, but they had taken her to Jay Cook State Park near Duluth. They told me to sit down, so I did. Fortunately, I had a pair of slacks and a blazer. Otherwise, I think I would have been very cold. We just sort of sat there for two days, and I sat up straight, and one of the kidnappers was in my attendance all that time. He only chained me up to the tree when he left to go. If he heard a funny noise or something in the woods, I was handcuffed the entire time. The most miserable part about it was that it was so terribly cold and wet and damp, and he was even shivering as much as I was. But then on Friday night, he told me that my husband was delivering the ransom. The ransom note was very specific. The kidnappers asked for used $20 bills without markings to be bound in four separate packages and put inside a canvas bag. Bobby followed an intricate set of instructions about the drop-off of the money and returned without incidents. The kidnappers appeared to have the money, but Bobby had no clue who they are. So this is a pretty unusual case to me, uh, this 1972 kidnapping of Jenny Piper. What did you think of it, just sort of what I've covered so far there? Well, it is an unusual case. And uh, so I, I, without researching, if I'm just thinking about it, I can't think of a whole lot of cases well, certainly not, you know, involving a million dollar ransom since that was the largest ransom at that time. But you don't often actually hear about kidnapping victims that are ransom for money actually being returned when the money is received, right? It just, it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, no, it doesn't. It's um, it's unusual. But what we did have going on now, now we talked about this time in our Christmas episodes. If you remember, 1972 and 1973 is where several of those episodes took place in time, including uh, the different hostage takings that were going on. And we were talking about how people were getting bolder with airplanes during like this brief period from the late 60s to like the mid-70s. There were some really bold hijackings that took place. And this is very similar to those. It just is asking for a huge amount of money. Right. And well, it was, I, th- I feel like it may have been a little more personal than those, but. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely more personal. I'm just saying like on the, I guess I'm thinking on the scale of like rising 
financial crimes that involve kidnappings or hijackings. Like this is sort of like the golden age here that we're looking at. Um, it is. Um, it's almost uh, my brain almost switches like you're interpreting fiction right now when you have a situation described like what she said, where they just took her, she sat in the woods and waited for her husband to give him the money. And then she's returned. Yeah. It's, it's fictional. It, 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 it just so rarely happens that way. Cause uh, the majority of the time uh, it's, it's never just a kidnapping for just money. Right. Uh, right. Ransom is a thing that happens. Uh, it may happen more in other countries, but um, most of the time, you know, people don't have liquid money to give a kidnapper, no matter who takes them, right? Um, yeah. And not to make it worthwhile, right? No, not this level, not at all. I The elements that line up for me is the way they take her, the ransom note being there when she's gone, meaning there doesn't have to be really any further contact except you know, to work out the last part of it. And the fact that she's alive when it's over, the amount of money, and then how they kept her, we get a description of that. But let's be honest, like a lot of people in this situation do not make it. And then I think the last part that's really interesting to me is, at least technically, they get away with it. They do, uh, which is also very odd considering the victim was, you know, still alive at the end of it. Yeah. If you go through and read newspaper articles about this, the way that the papers describe this at the time, they say describe it as being almost the perfect crime. And they include that element that she's alive when everything is over, despite the fact that like she, she can barely describe them because they essentially keep her in the dark. I hate to say it that way, but they keep her in the dark um, and they don't do uh, other than psychological harm, they don't do any physical, real physical harm to her. They're um, they're basically just using her as the instrument to get this money that they want. And it worked. It does work. The way that this pans out is, and, and this is from Swanson's reporting and Briggs reporting and multiple newspapers in the Minneapolis area from the 1970s. The police interview, with along with the FBI, over a thousand people. And in that group of a thousand people, they have a pair of criminals named Donald Larson and James Callahan, who are really interesting to them. Um, and pretty much everybody they interview in this group of a thousand is essentially cleared. Now, okay. Let me specify what I mean by cleared. <laughs> by fall of 1972, they decided that most of these people had nothing to do with this. But they can't get past uh, Donald Larson and Kenneth Callahan being their prime suspects. About five years pass. So in 1977, this crime, this kidnapping of Jenny Piper, is still unsolved. On July the 11th of 1977, an interesting thing was happening, and that is the statute of limitations was going to run out for the federal government or the state government and local authorities to be able to take any kind of action legally at the time. So that five-year statute of limitation was going to make it so they couldn't do anything. And they got a little desperate. They had two weeks to spare on July 11th, and a couple of FBI agents end up 
uh, asking the U.S. attorneys to indict the men that they believe were responsible, which is this pair of petty criminals from the Twin City area uh, that they call the prime suspects, and that's Donald Larson and Kenneth Callahan. They had another man they had named as a prime suspect named Timothy Gray, but for some reason they didn't indict him, and they didn't rule out that he was involved. They just don't really bring him back into the picture that much. Now, if you look into the book, uh, Stolen from the Garden, according to the book, this is the description of what they were doing at the time. William Swanson says that Callahan was a cabinet maker. He ends up being arrested as cabinet in Cumberland, Wisconsin. And Larson found that about the indictment while he was in his cell at Stillwater, Minnesota, because he had already, like, so in that five years, he had managed to get himself a life sentence for a very, very serious set of homicides where he killed his estranged wife, Ruth Larson, uh, their son, Mark, his wife's new lover, James Falk Sr., and James's son, James Falk Jr. He had been found not guilty in the death of uh, Ruth's other son, Scott Powell, for he was declared temporarily insane. But ultimately, that is called the Willow River murders, and we're not covering that today. But that was just one more thing that sort of uh, plays into this. And they put these guys on trial, even after five years of interviewing everybody in the Ginny Piper kidnapping. The FBI realized they did not have much. They had a partial fingerprint on a ripped grocery bag that in what they believed was the kidnapper's car that seemed to match Larson's left pinky finger, which is a weird thing to match. Uh, they found a six-inch strand of reddish hair that prosecutors said microscopically resembled Callahan's hair. But today, that wouldn't even be allowed in court the way that went down. Now, Callahan looked a little bit like a composite sketch that an artist had done of a man who had been seen passing ransom bills in 1974. I didn't read the exact amount today. I've read it before. I think they find about $4,000 of these bills. I thought it was about eight, but I'm not sure. They they find like some small number of this million dollars in 20s. They don't find a lot of it. So they put him on a federal trial. Uh, the, the paperwork themselves, it, it's pretty interesting. The jury ends up deliberating for 30 hours. They originally get convicted by a federal grand jury, but in a November 5th, 1977 story from the Star Tribune, jurors said that they, are, they were leaning toward acquittal. So what ends up happening here is weird. They immediately appeal this conviction, and the... Uh, the appeal like almost goes straight into a second trial. So the prosecution gets even more complicated. In the first trial, they put, I think they put 100 witnesses on the stand. And in the second trial, they put 154 witnesses on the stand. Uh, The defense points out that Callahan and Larson were removed from the suspect list back when like immediately after the crime, they were put back on when the statute of limitations was running out and the Bureau was desperate for a conviction of any kind. So the fingerprint, when they go back and they test it, the first, the, they keep a record of every time they test a fingerprint. The first three times, 
that the fingerprint is compared to Larson's, it doesn't match. But on the fourth try, the FBI suddenly says it's a match. I've never figured out why that happened. I do not know to this day if it actually matched. Um, I would say that it didn't. And the reason I say that is because uh, every single time I've ever seen a an analysis report come back uh, in a, any case about uh, a fingerprint analysis, which that doesn't mean I've seen all of them. I'm just saying what I've seen. It's always a direct comparison by like one analyst. Yeah. And so I kind of pictured it like they they were were like, Hey, we need this. Yeah. Well, I was picturing it like bending the matches. Like, so (laughs) like if you're trying to compare 10 points, it doesn't match. It doesn't match. If you're trying to compare eight points, it doesn't match. You're trying to, compare six points it doesn't match you're trying to compare three points wait 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 it's a match like right and you know there has to be some sort of uh standard there that uh was used or not used or whatever but uh to me it it shouldn't any more match the third time than it didn't match the first and second unless there's some creative interpretation happening right so we've been through the first trial we've got this crazy second trial with some really good uh defense attorneys and it turned out that jenny piper ended up being one of the best witnesses for the defense in this case (laughs) so she like had very carefully been able to like look at these guys and describe him but she wasn't able to pull them out of a lineup specifically callahan so the way that this worked is in her testimony Callahan's voice sounded closest to the person who was with her in the woods, but didn't look like him. And she didn't pull him out of a lineup. She also described the kidnapper that was with her as having an unusual eye condition where he had an opaque color band around his pupil. And Callahan nor Larson had that. The defense also addressed kind of the most important issue here, which would have been at the time, whether the FBI even had any jurisdiction in this case. Now, today they do. In 1972, it was more of a do they, because they would have needed to have proven that something had taken place interstate, meaning between Minnesota and Wisconsin. Uh, So that was like a, a relevant factor in this particular trial. But everything that gets laid out by the prosecution and then the rebuttal by the defense in just four hours, this second jury comes back and their verdict is not guilty. And they basically said that the government failed to prove this case. And when they came back with the not guilty verdict, this case is closed. So Larson goes back and he ends up serving the rest of a life sentence in Stillwater. Callahan, he moves on uh, to go back to Wisconsin and the Piper family is going to try to recover from what happened to them uh, much earlier in July of 1972. So there's like some questions they point out in here, like what are the like most asked questions? Uh, there's a lot of the people involved in this case are gone. Like they are passed away. This is an article from 2021, which is like kind of the same parks uh, rapid enterprise setup. Uh, it's quoting Swanson, uh, Briggs is writing, and it says, as the 50th anniversary of the Piper kidnapping approaches, which would have been in 2022, but they say next summer, in many ways we know less about the case than we did a half century ago. 
In the book Stolen from the Garden, The Kidnapping of Virginia Piper, Swanson explains it like this. Making definitive sense of this case is like trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle using pieces from half a dozen different kits. Many of the people in the case are long gone, leaving any new theories to be raised by those with secondhand knowledge of what happened, or perhaps descendants of those responsible who could come forward with credible evidence. Whether more answers ever come, the kidnapping of Jenny Piper was the top story of the year in 1972, and to this day remains one of Minnesota's biggest true crime mysteries. Here are some of the most frequently asked questions. Did Callahan and Larson kidnap Virginia Piper? Even the Piper family itself was split on this one. Both Virginia and Bobby Piper went to their graves convinced that Callahan and Larson were involved. Their middle son, Tad, agreed with his parents, stating in Swanson's book that mom was a very intelligent woman. If she believed those guys did it, they probably did it. However, oldest son, Harry Piper III, believes the two are innocent and for a while was even looking into writing a book about this case, going so far as to interview Callahan. The man once thought to be the person who chained his mother to a tree in the woods. Youngest son, David, according to Swanson, goes back and forth on whether the two men were guilty or innocent. Swanson, who has become as much an expert on this case as anyone, for his part, thinks that Callahan and Larson were not involved in the kidnapping. He says the state's evidence was circumstantial, including the fingerprint that, after three failed attempts to match Larson, suddenly matched. He called it a Hail Mary before the statute of limitations ran out. He also said the case featured unreliable witnesses and lacked a lot of common sense and logic. Callahan and Larson were career small timers, lacking the ambition and imagination to conceive and execute a million dollar job. But retired Pine County Deputy Jerry Olson in 1976, a 20-something deputy who dealt with Larson when he murdered five people, has another take. I might agree that Larson might not be the mastermind, but he's certainly a capable participant, and he wasn't that stupid. He played dumb, but he was pretty shrewd. Some have theorized that Swanson and Larson were simply the grunts tasked with carrying out the plan that a more sophisticated, intelligent criminal mastermind designed. In the past 50 or so years, while Callahan and Larson certainly didn't live like kings on any million-dollar ransom, they also seemed to come up with money whenever it was needed. Pine County attorney Reese Fredrickson said Larson brought the Willow River property, this is where the murders take place, he built an expensive garage and he paid his wife $4,000 for their pending divorce shortly after the kidnapping, despite the fact that he was on food stamps and unemployed at the time. Fredrickson said, so they always wonder, where did he get that money for that? But Swanson said Larson's personality also makes it unlikely that he was involved. Don Larson was an inveterate blabbermouth. He was an inveterate blabbermouth. They called him the mouth. That was his nickname. He would have been the most popular inmate in the system because he pulled off the largest ransom kidnapping ever and was not convicted for it. So do you think he would have kept his mouth shut for it? No. Uh, another question is, were the river, were the Willow River uh, murders related to the kidnapping? On the surface, the murders in Willow River seem to be a clear case of a jilted husband violently losing control in a jealous rage. After all, Larson arrived at his former house to find his estranged wife and her lover packing up his truck to move her out. But some, including police and the FBI, theorized that the jealous rage could have just been an excuse, the easiest story. And the murders could have been a way to cover up Larson's earlier crime of the Piper kidnapping. 
Sergeant Jerry Olson, who was the first deputy to arrive at the murder scene, didn't know the FBI suspected Larson in the Piper kidnapping. But that changed when he was asked to stay overnight at the crime scene. So the next morning, around 6.30 or 7 o'clock, I noticed there was a car down at the end of the driveway with two well-dressed gentlemen standing outside. When Olson asked if he could help them, they told him they were the FBI. He was telling me that they had come up to talk to Mrs. Larson on the previous Thursday and ask if he could interview her. And she said, well, I'm leaving Don, so if you can wait till next week, I'm, I'm glad to talk to you, Olson said. Ruth had been Larson's alibi the weekend of the Piper kidnapping. Could she have been ready to come clean and change her story once she was away from Larson? Maybe, maybe not, said Olson, but he thinks it's a possibility. The following day, Larson came to pick up Mark to take him to Minneapolis, and Olson said perhaps Mark told his father that the FBI had come to see Mom. Could the jealous rage story have been an excuse, and Larson instead been killing his wife to shut her up before she could change her story? Uh, there's a lot of stuff about this that that doesn't line up, and they kind of point this out in this article. Uh, the the big question was where is the ransom money? Uh, it's literally the million dollar question, uh, or the nine hundred ninety six thousand dollar question, because they they're confirming here four thousand dollars of the ransom money was recovered after being circulated by someone in southern Minnesota. Well, I would say that um, since uh, was it him or the other one gave their uh, wife. Four thousand dollars for the you know impending divorce they were having. Well, that four thousand is separate. That might be where you came up with the eight because they're saying that this four thousand was someone else. Someone circulated that they caught it, like it was marked in some way. I don't know. Uh, That's a lot of money. I never saw the um, distinction between the two four thousand dollar. Uh, situations. It, it was my impression that they were saying without saying. Um, oh, I'll buy that for a dollar. Yep, I that it was. Uh, it was very strange that uh, the same amount of money he gave uh, ended up coming back. I, and I don't know how they tracked it or whatever. Right? It doesn't go into detail. But that would be her spending that money that he had given her. Could be. Yeah, it absolutely could be. So. Should would-be treasure hunters go out to the Willow River property to look? No. Yeah. Uh, Olson, Swanson, they all say it's highly unlikely there's anything there. Olson says the FBI went through there with backhoes, and they tore the place apart looking for it, and they didn't find anything. He says anything is possible, but he thinks it's rare, not likely that it's going to be on that property. Uh, If it's buried somewhere, it's probably buried elsewhere. Pine County attorney Reese Fredrickson comes back in and he says that he's been told by Larson's family members he wasn't the kind of guy who would have buried something. He would have hid it in the rafters, whatever that means. He said he had someone come to Reese and say that her theory is that when the house was torn down, that whoever owned the property at the time got the money out of the house, and that's why they tore it down. Other theories suggest that whoever kidnapped and collected the ransom money spent it or laundered it through legitimate businesses years ago, which is what... I have some thoughts on that that were kind of related in the last episode. I believe that Harvey and his brother had the money. And I think that they they bought a gas station. And how would they have gotten it? The money? I think they were the kidnappers. I don't think Larson or Callahan had anything to do with it. I think those others, they lived in, uh, they lived up in Minnesota back then. And so he wouldn't have been in uh, jail yet, right? 
No, he was not in jail at the time. We worked the timing out where it looks like it could have. But he committed um, like more crimes afterwards that he did go to jail for. You know, he's alive. We could ask him. Yeah. Uh, uh, so Harvey's in jail. He's a serial killer that's in jail that we talked about. Right, but I'm, what I'm saying is, like, so he had spent time in jail, got out of jail, and then we see that, so he would have done this sort of in the meantime, between the time that he had already spent time in jail, and then he um, would go back to jail. So my question is, like, do we know anything, what do we know about his brother? Did he go to jail for murder yeah. or anything like that? No, he had done some sense. I don't know the end of his story. He's well, one of those that he, I could probably find it. But so this is July 27th, 1972. So here's the way I ran this down. This is crazy. But between 1969 and 1972, Carnahan received, um, I'm saying his name weird again, but uh, Kerrigan received seven speeding tickets. And several of those speeding tickets were in Washington and the rest were in Minnesota. He was from Minnesota, though. Like, he had ties to Minnesota. You know what I mean? Right, 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 right. I was just curious because, like, I don't see him as the type of person who would have just, like, kidnapped a woman, sat with her out in the woods, and then given her back. Oh, I thought that was the brother. See, and that's possible. Um, uh, Definitely possible. I would be interested to know that condition she described is pretty specific. The cloudiness around the eye or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ring around the eye. And uh, it also, but here's, here's sort of what I didn't get from, uh, I believe that was a three part series, but here's what left me with more questions was like, okay, so she went to her grave thinking that they were involved, right? Uh, the yeah. guys that were on trial for it. And, uh, but yet, you know, she got, um, she had this very specific detail about one of them and neither of the guys had it. Right. And like nobody bridges the gap there, I guess. That's a, um, that's a really good point. And I guess maybe a little bit like when they were saying, you know, maybe they weren't the mastermind or whatever, but they did the work. But that still doesn't uh, that still doesn't explain that gap there where she's saying, I looked at him. He had this whatever. I I can't remember what it was called, but it was a opaque ring around his eye. And uh, so she saw him very close. Right. But yet uh, she remained convinced that they were involved, even though clearly uh, it wasn't the guy she described. It's weird. You know, it's so, you know, I think Clinton is still alive. The brother Clinton Kerrigan, uh, I think him and Harvey are both still alive. I'm totally, I'm now I'm curious, like if they would answer that question at this point, because like, what is anybody going to do to them? That would create the weirdest treasure hunts, wouldn't it? Uh, well, maybe uh, that money's long gone. Um, you think if they had it, they spent it. There's no question. I mean, somehow or another, uh, that money. Yeah, I think anybody, whether it was, you know, found by somebody else or whatever, that money's gone. But uh, to me, though, is the only reason that that comes up. Uh, 
Because he was a guy that ended up in jail as a serial killer who was also no, he, a rapist. He is, it's never publicly described, uh, but he is high on the FBI. Like he's in their top 10 for this crime. He well, is they, never they, considered cleared. But there's no like, uh, like nobody saw him in the area or anything like that. No, we just know he was out of jail. He was available for it. He wasn't committing other offenses. Like, so uh, I, I had, remember the circles on the maps? I had wondered if they found something there that made them think about it. Yeah, I, I would just, um, so this could go like, you know, either way really depending. I mean, it, the case is over obviously um without being resolved ever right um yeah. now they, they did get convicted one time and then they were acquitted right yeah yeah so they get convicted they get a new trial and they get uh, acquitted i actually can't recall right off the top of my head why did uh why was it sent back for a new trial uh, the answer to that's sort of complicated. The gist of it is it gets through the 8th District, and there's a couple of reasons they find to kick it back down. The district court argues that they're wrong. There's a witness involved who could potentially say they didn't do it because someone else did. Um, there's some problematic evidence that went on. This is during the, the it gets in the second trial. But uh, it's very complicated to look at cases that old from the perspective of like they come in these huge um, like the, the files are all individualized. I'm, I'm not trying to like make an excuse, but it would take us like hours for me to sit here and read through them all. It's a pretty sound finding to send it back. Um, I won't say that it completely acquits them. I will say that it gave me a lot of, it, like I, I felt like a jury could find reasonable doubt in there because I had doubts after reading it, but I had doubts because of the fingerprint evidence. I felt like the fingerprint evidence alone was really weird. Does that make sense? Yeah, so who overturned it? The eighth court. Okay. Claims communicated in between court and jury. So the end of this document reads, on the records made at trial and on remand, the motions for a judgment of acquittal or a new trial are denied. And then the United States Eighth Circuit said, this dude's an idiot. He's wrong. And they agreed. They agreed with the defendants and they kicked the whole case. Right. The, the problem is uh, that I still have that, the thought of the gap between the kidnapping victim, uh, Virginia Piper and uh, the very obvious physical description she gave of her captor or one of her captors. And uh, the, the fact that it didn't exist on those two defendants. Could this, like, I mean, they didn't kill her, but, like, this could, like, actually prove one of my theories wrong, um, that, you know, the more people are involved, the more uh, likely somebody is going to talk. I, I just can't. Uh, there's a gap here in the recording. Uh, it's not a gap, but I'm not going to put the whole thing in here. But essentially what I did was I did stop and go through all of the individual PDFs back and forth between the defendants and uh, the U.S. government. And I gave Meg the gist of why it got kicked. Um, I'm not including that for listening here because it's pretty dry. Um, the recording's not great. 
uh, had multiple things open. But I am going to bring back in the recording between Meg and myself to sort of wrap this up, like the final conclusions that we had about the kidnapping of, of Jenny Piper. So thanks for looking that up. I didn't really mean to derail everything. I just found that interesting. Um, I don't some- ultimately know why they kicked it still. There's a like, I don't like reading court records this old because they're so long. Well, I think it's going to have, uh, I think the reason, um, well, actually, I don't even know if they presented it, but it's probably going to have to do with the jury more so than anything, which I would say is more of a technicality thing. Mm. Could be. I mean, ultimately, it resulted in a new trial, and the new trial had an acquittal. So, obviously, this is one of those things we kind of have to be split down the middle on, whether we want to be or not, because once they convicted and once they acquitted, I don't see anything in here that really looks like damning evidence that they did it. I mean, so I think it's unsolved. That's yeah. yeah, no, and you know, if we're going we can if we're gonna go by the process, the process found them to have been acquitted, right? And I, I love to look into stuff and you know, find it's just it doesn't seem like all the information is here. And I do feel like because I mean she essentially was she was I'm sure she was traumatized, she was kidnapped, but like she she was very fortunate, right? Um, as far as like not being hurt, not being attacked, not being killed, right? Yeah. So um, I think that that is where, um, I mean, I, I, I feel like kidnappings should absolutely be looked into and investigated and prosecuted to the fullest. I'm just not entirely sure uh, from, it seems like from the jump here, like they admitted the statute of limitations was about to run out. And so it's like they picked the, the people that they thought they had the most with. I guess it doesn't even seem to me like uh, they even thought they could actually convict them. It's just who they had the most about to present, right? Yeah. And I don't know that that's necessarily how we want, uh, you know, criminals being prosecuted. No, I don't think it is. I don't think that's what we want going on there either. But I don't, I don't know that like my idea is any better. Where I've followed this link, and I didn't posit of Harvey having done this with Brother Clinton. I just am saying. Like that came up in the course of my research into Genesis part one. And I wanted to cover the kidnapping because I mentioned it that way. I will say that I would believe that brothers would do something like that and possibly keep it quiet. Yeah. I could see that brothers would be more reasonable, especially brother criminals. I think that'd be more reasonable. Yeah, and, you know, this wasn't a violent crime, and so if his brother was um, nonviolent, I I don't believe, though, that, um, I don't believe that the serial killer would have, not in between those two things, I doubt very seriously he wouldn't have attacked her, at least. Yeah. And, you know, she never mentions that, and I assume that that's the case, so... Um, the other thing is I've always wondered, um, well, I've wondered since we've been looking at this case, like, it seems hard to fathom that her husband didn't have any idea who it was. Uh, why do you say that? 
like you think he just knew or you think like he should have known from the drop or like it just seems like any I think random- he had a list in his head well sure that's what i mean like i you know because i guess maybe they exhibited the wealth right um as far as the way they lived or whatever but so it would have to be somebody that had information about them uh, and well, and see, this may be naive of me, but I don't really think that anybody would be like, would take me and then ask my husband for a million dollars. Right. But if the circumstances presented themselves, it seems like my husband would be able to come up with a very short list of people that might have a motivation to do that. Right. Yeah. You know, cause even like when you look at somebody that lives in like a huge house and seems well to do the odds of hitting a kidnapping uh, target that's actually going to be able to produce a million dollars cash the next day is highly unlikely. Yeah. And so because it all came together, like it did, it makes me wonder like, you know, somebody, it seems like, should have been able to narrow that down and say, okay, I think it might be blank. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm not saying he was involved or anything. I'm just saying like a lot of times you can find, and you know, I'm sure he thought that to himself as well. Right. And he must've just come up empty. Hmm. But you know, the, the, the victim and her husband, they both, um, believed the men who were put on trial convicted it was overturned and then they were eventually acquitted it says they believed that they were involved and so um to me that's that speaks volumes right and there's so much of the story it seems like the narrative kind of skips over and to me it while she didn't die and she was just a kidnapping victim it's one of the it's fascinating. It really is because of the intricacies of what happened here and uh, how nobody ever, you know, justice was never served for her kidnapping. Yeah. I, I think psychologically it's probably traumatic, but I don't necessarily know that like her life changed all that much because of it. She seemed to have a very good attitude. Yeah, she definitely does. Well, that's all I got on this one. You got any more for Jenny Piper? Yeah. So this is my absolute last thought on this case. Um, And then we'll move on to the next one. A million dollars in 1972 would be worth $7.1 million today. That's a lot of money. Thank you so much for joining us today. I would ask if you guys like the show, please share the show. Or you can go on to your favorite podcast app, whether it's Apple or Google or uh, one of the more interesting apps, Spotify, Overcast, uh, we're on all those different things. If you could go on there and leave us a a rating or a review. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to leave us a five-star review, but like whatever you think of the show, leave an honest review of the show uh, because that will help us to grow our audience in season four. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS 
Or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at truecrimexs at gmail.com. And you can check out our website at www.truecrimexs.com. We'll see you next time. Uh, you know, when we started talking about making a podcast, it was one thing. And now you get in and it's like, you know, fourth year in, uh, fourth season, which is weird because like we didn't really, uh, I, I did not know Meg maybe had an idea in her head. I don't know. Uh, we didn't know that we were going to keep going with the podcast. We just liked the idea of doing the research. And what was weird was we knew we were going to keep doing the research even if we weren't doing it. So this first part, this several episodes um, where uh, I, I call them Genesis episodes, because we're looking at what makes these serial killers. I know we started with the Lonely Hearts killer. It's kind of a strange place to start. But it's the type of killer that was going on that had like uh, sort of this golden age feel to it. And we wanted to go back through and address multiple serial killers along the way where we were doing these pretty deep dives. Now today's episode is a tangent episode. It's actually like part one, a, it's not part two of this little series that we're doing because part two, um, (laughs) it's weird. We don't actually get to the serial killer for a couple of episodes. The whole point is, is to give you background, like around, um, other people or similar people, or uh, this is how it looked when, when these other killers did it. And we wanted to look at serial killers from around the world that were happening at the same time. It's hard to do that and uh, put together like a really cohesive season. The first part of it's going to feel like a pretty deep dive into two killers. And then uh, we'll have some summer stuff that we're doing. And in the fall, uh, we're going to start tying up what we've done with these origins here with some more modern killers that we really don't know anything about them for some really specific reasons. There's three or four of them in a row that um, they have something in common that's very difficult to describe, but just saying it, you have to show it happening. And that's why we were doing these series. Um, this is technically a bonus episode for uh, the first week. It's not actually a regular episode. It was not in the planned episodes, but we will have more of those coming out starting next week. Uh, they, they may take a minute or two to get edited and into the feed, but we've re- recorded some very interesting stuff about these killers that we hope that uh, you're going to hang out for season four and listen to them. But I wanted to uh, say Happy New Year and to say thanks for listening to True Crime Access. Uh, it's kind of a big deal for me. Thanks. 